You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Jtown. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. If you're able, I encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. So in your bulletin, you also have all the way down to verse 17, even the reading of the Word has verse 7, all the way down to verse 17. And so... This is kind of what you do as a preacher. You get into something, you write it out, and then you look at it Saturday night and go, man, I don't know if this fits real well here. And so uh, not that verses 14 through 17 doesn't make sense of the whole. I just have a limited amount of time, all right? And it's like, I don't know if I can open up that can and close it up really fast. And so we're just going to focus our efforts on verses 1 through 13. If you've got questions about 14 through 17 and how they fit, I would love to have conversations with you about that. But for our time, we're just looking at the first 13 verses, all right? Okay, so hopefully you guys are good with that and uh, you won't fire me. All right, so here we go. First one, uh, I'm sure you are. You're good to know. All right, here we go. So Jesus, that's who he is, obviously, because of the context. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. And just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. And perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. And so he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God, who had given such authority to men. And as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we ask for your help, that your spirit would come and help us to see the wonderful things that are in this word. Convict us, challenge us, comfort us, and draw us closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So here, here's kind of what I, I, I hope to do this morning. I, I feel like there's, there, there's kind of two primary sort of truths that are, that are rising to the top here in these two passages, and, uh, or these two stories here. And I think at the center of them is this idea of forgiveness. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote, and I, I feel like this quote is sort of... Um, uh, kind of in the background as I'm working through this text, you know, as I, I'm working through this morning, it's kind of in the background, sort of on my mind, and I, and I sort of want it to be the case for us this morning. Uh, so I want to bring it to the foreground so we know what this is, but I do think it's sort of um, 
the theme that I'm after here that I believe is in this text. And here's, here's the quote. Forgiving is empowering. I know sometimes when I put a quote up there, everybody reads the quote real quickly. So just kind of sit with that for a second. Forgiving is empowering. Think about it in your own life. You know, just think horizontal forgiveness. How empowering that is when someone that's close to you that you've wronged forgives you. Forgiving is empowering. Forgiveness of sins is the engine of the Christian movement. Nothing moves us like assurance that we are fully pardoned by God. Just sit with that for a second. I know sometimes, especially if you grew up in church, you kind of read that last little phrase and you probably hear the, the Charlie Brown teacher, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like I've heard that a minute. But, but just sit with that. Nothing moves us like assurance that we are fully pardoned by God. I think if you're somewhat familiar with some of the other gospel writers, you would read this story, hear this story, and say, I mean, this sounds really familiar. Sounds like a story where Matthew's kind of leaving out a detail that seems like a big deal, right? There's another story I remember where these four guys are carrying a guy that's paralyzed, and they dig a hole in the roof, right? And they've got to get this guy before Jesus because they figured out something. Jesus can do something for their paralytic, and so... There was a massive crowd in this house, and they got to do what they got to do to get in there. So they climbed up on the roof, and they dug an actual hole in this guy's roof, which I'm sure they didn't have insurance in that time. And so this probably cost a lot of money for this man or whatever. I'm sure they weren't real happy about that. So they can get this guy at the feet of Jesus. They, they did a lot here, and that, that's exciting. I mean, I think about that, that story like that. That can preach. And so you've got to ask the question because this is the same story. This is not two different stories, same story. Why in the world did Matthew leave that detail out? Like, that's kind of a big deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I'm writing, I I would remember that detail, and he did remember it. But he specifically chose not to put that detail in there because Matthew's wanting to emphasize something that he's concerned that if I put this detail in there, it would overshadow what I'm trying to emphasize. And what Matthew's trying to emphasize in this little, first little section here, this first little story is this, is that Jesus can forgive you. Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive you. I mean, look at this. Look what happens here. Starting in verse 1, we, Jesus gets off a boat. He has, sees these men coming with this paralytic, and he sees their faith, and Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And, then, and there are some religious leaders. We see this in verse 3. And at the same time, some scribes and religious leaders said to themselves, oh my goodness, he's blaspheming. I mean, he's, I mean, this is in essence what Jesus is doing here when he looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. You're, he's claiming to be God. What in the world? Only God can forgive sins. And sometimes we, we have a tendency to kind of, or I have a tendency to kind of look down on the Pharisees and religious leaders of this time. They just didn't get it. They're so, so awful and they're bad. But, you know, I, like I think we would understand if we're watching this play out in real time because remember, Jesus just looks like a normal Jewish man. He's, like I know I say this a lot, but we just need to remember this. He's not walking around with a glow it's not like there's some neon sign, I'm God, I'm God. And he's just a, a normal Jewish guy, and he's doing things that's like really confusing. It would be like this, and hopefully this helps us see kind of how crazy of what Jesus is saying. It would be like, you know, let's say my, 
my neighbors or your neighbors are fighting, having a massive argument in their yard because a tree fell down and they're trying to decide whose tree, you know, who, who owns a tree and who should cut it up or whatever. And the reason why I'm saying trees is I got all kinds of crazy trees I'm trying to kill or not kill but get down before they get on my house. But uh, let's say they're in a massive argument then I just show up and I just say, hey, you guys are forgiven. I mean, I don't know about your neighbors. I know my neighbors. That wouldn't go over very well, right? They'd have a few choice words to share with Lyle Drury, right? You know what I'm saying? Like they would say, get the blankety blank off my property and get on back to your house, right? Who the heck do you think you are telling me I'm forgiven, right? That's in essence what's going on here. Who does Jesus think he is? And so he hears them. He's, he is God in the flesh. Verse 4, look what he says here. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say? Not do, but which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? That's not a trick question. Right? I know sometimes Jesus can ask some quick trick questions, but that's not a trick one. I mean, it's an easy, easy answer. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Say it out loud. Which one's easier? Yeah, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you can't prove that. There's nothing to verify that. Because that's an... That's something that happens within our own interior world. You can't verify whether someone's sins are forgiven. That's, that's an easy thing to say. But if I say to this man, get up and walk, then there's some proof, right? Then you can verify whether I've got the authority or the power to do that. And that's what he says here in verse 6. So, but so that you may know, and not just them, but us. This is written for our benefit. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. And remember, this is a theme that we see all throughout chapters 8 and 9. So Jesus comes off the mountain after teaching. And what do the crowds say about Jesus? What do they say? That's awesome. All right, I kind of want a little cloud participation here, but that's okay. Right, it's not a trick question again. I'm not trying to, like, shame you for giving the wrong answer. It's just like they came off the mountain. They're going like, man, this guy never, we've never heard someone preach like this. I mean, we've got some scribes, religious leaders. They've done some teaching of the law. But not like Jesus. He teaches with what? Authority. There's something about his presence. There's something about his, the way he speaks. And he speaks with authority. He goes in and he heals and, and cleanses lepers and sickness. He has so much authority in his word that the centurion gets that all you've got to do is just say the word and my servant who's not in the same zip code will be healed instantly. He gets that. He's got, he's got power and authority over the, over the sea. We saw this last week where he just, you know, he's sleeping. Disciples freaking out. He stands up. He just speaks a word. Calm down. And the, and the ocean, the sea, the waters, they have no other choice other than to obey the very words of Jesus because he's the one that's created them and put them into existence and even in that moment holds them together. He has authority over that. And then we saw at the end there, he's got authority over demons, over this invisible spirit world where they have no other choice but to obey him. And then it's almost like Matthew says, I'm going to up the ante. That's really important to understand about who Jesus is, but he also has authority to forgive sins. And to show you that I have that authority to forgive sins on earth, he told the paralytic, get up, Take your stretcher and go home. And what happened? Look at verse 7. So he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority, there's our word again, to men. So think about this. What, what is, um, what's Matthew doing here? 
Like, why does he, um, or what's Jesus trying to do here? What is he trying to help us see? I mean, think about it. Why does he tell this paralyzed man that the, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is your sins are forgiven? Why there? Why him? He doesn't do it to the, the guy with leprosy, right? Just in chapter 8. I mean, you look at chapter, the guy with leprosy, the, the, the son of the centurion, or the servant of the centurion, you know, he doesn't do that for him. He doesn't say, hey, your sins are forgiven. He heals him. He doesn't do it for Peter's mother-in-law, right? He doesn't walk by Peter and his mother-in-law go, your sins are forgiven. Your, your, your fever's gone too, you know? No, he just touches her and her fever's gone. Like, why here? What, what is going on here to where he looks at this man who is paralyzed and says first your sins are forgiven i don't know about you but if i'm the four guys that have been dragging this guy i mean carrying a guy on, on a mat's probably not too bad but it's probably not real comfortable either i mean it's, you, you know got four of you kind of carrying the weight but it's that's a lot of work and then you know we know from the other gospel writers they just tore through a roof to get him in front of jesus and all you got is your sins are forgiven if i'm them i'm disappointed but I don't think the paralyzed man was. You see, I think what Matthew's trying to help us see here, and I think what Jesus is trying to help us see here, is that Jesus' primary mission is not to come and give us physical healing. That's a part of his mission. And we see that. And we'll talk a little bit more about it next week and kind of get a bigger understanding of what Jesus is showing us by healing people physically. But that's not the only reason why he showed up. Guys, you've got to remember, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that were never healed by Jesus. When he went to the pool of Bethsaida, that is a place where hundreds of people were sick. And Jesus healed how many people there? One. And so by him looking at this paralyzed man and saying, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is helping us see that he's come here to do even a deeper work that is more deep than just our physical healing. He's come here to heal us at the depth of our own souls. Our souls are also sick, which can lead to our physical bodies being sick. And so Jesus has not just come here to bring about a physical healing. He has also come here to heal the very depths of our being. The greatest healing that all of us need is in our relationship with God. That we are created as a human beings to be in relationship, to be in communion with God the Father. And sin is the barrier that keeps us from that kind of communion, from coming back home to Him. And so Jesus, first and foremost, has come to deal with that kind of soul sickness. I mean, yes, I mean, yes, he could have, he could have looked at the paralyzed guy and said, hey, man, you're, for, you, you know, you're healed. Get up, go on home. And this guy would have been, as I like to say, peeing in his pants, right? He'd be so excited, right? Can you imagine the excitement of this man? He's probably been on this mat for years upon years. By just one word, he gets up and he's got legs that can walk. You know, muscles that he can feel, that he can function. He can even carry his own mat. He doesn't need his buddies. I mean, what kind of like excitement and joy would happen there? And Jesus had the power just to do that. But where would this man be in a year? Where would this man be in two years, four years, five years? What will cure and heal the deep discontent in this person's soul. I mean, guys, look. 
Can we just step back and just reflect for a minute? We've got millions upon millions of people who are able-bodied. I mean, there's no disease wrecking their world physically. There's, they're, they're in stellar health, way better looking than us. I mean, fit, way fitter than any of us in this room. You know what I'm saying? Like, for some of us, maybe there's probably a few of you in here that like to like massively fit. That would be like next level compared to anyone else, including myself in this room, right? But here's the point. There are millions of able-bodied people in this world, but they're absolutely miserable. There's a restlessness. There's a discontent. There's an unrest that's just deep, deep within their soul. I watched um, a, a 30 for 30 this week. I don't know if you guys watched this or not. It's on Dennis Rodman. Anybody watch that? I'm talking about a few of you. Yeah, if you haven't, I mean, first of all, these guys who put these 30 for 30s on, they're, they're amazing storytellers. I mean, they're just so talented and very gifted. Uh, give us a picture of the beauty and the glory of God by the way they tell, tell stories. Um, and I, you know, I remember him back in the day, man, I was not a big Bulls fan back in the 90s, but I was a big Jordan fan. Like, he was just phenomenal to watch. And there was a few years that team with him and Pittman and Jordan, I mean, they were just absolutely unstoppable. I mean, they were just crazy phenomenal. But I watched this. I think it's about a two-hour documentary. And at the end of watching this, um, and maybe – those who watched this felt this way too. I mean, there was just a, a heaviness that you felt. I mean, it's, it's a, it's very sad. And I think it was written in such a way to kind of bring out that heaviness. And at the end of this two-hour documentary of his life, like he's, like you'll, you'll see it when you watch, he's like on a stage like this. Um, and it's more of like he's facing that away and you can, can see like an empty auditorium. And he's all by himself. And he's just kind of um, just sharing some end thoughts. And I, and I may have butchered this quote, but, I, but in essence, this is what he said. This is at the very end of this documentary. He said, I'm probably one of 10 people that wherever I go in the world, I am known. And that may sound really arrogant, but when you watch this documentary, you're going, yeah, that's probably true. One of 10 people that wherever he goes in the world, he is known. And then he said this, you think I would be happy. And then it just ends with him weeping. Look, I don't know Dennis Rodman's full story. I don't know where he is in relationship with Jesus. I have no idea. I have no idea how God may be working behind the scenes here in people's lives to help Dennis see his greatest need is to see the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and receive that as own. But here's the, the verse that came to my mind at the end of that documentary. For what do you gain? What profit is there? You can gain the whole world and lose your soul. The only way that you can gain your soul back is by receiving the forgiveness of Jesus and Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive you. This is where healing begins. Jesus has come to do a deeper healing in the depths of our soul and to restore us back into right relationship with God the Father. That's 
what we're created for. And as long as we run away from that, then we're empty, we're discontent, we're unsettled, we're restless. So Jesus has the authority to forgive. And that's great news, right? We can just stop there and say, let's, let's do some more singing, right? We could, but we've got a few more things to look in the text, number one. <laughs> but here's even better news, I would say, is not only does he have the power and authority, look, he wants to. He longs to forgive you. I think sometimes, and, and whether we say this or not, I think it's kind of deep in our own psyche that we just feel like God's supposed to do that. That he's kind of fighting against his own desire and will to forgive us. Like, oh, humanity, right? It's like Seinfeld when he sees Newman. Newman, right? It's, sometimes that's, I think that's how we think God the Father thinks of us. Oh, humanity. Ah, oh, you're going to save that bunch of freakazoids no that's that's not what we see here not only does he have the power to forgive our sins he wants to and i think that's why matthew puts his story there so it's not random so here we got this story that highlights the very authority and power for jesus to forgive sins and it's almost like man i want to bring my story in here to help us see that not only does he have the power he wants to he longs to forgive you. He desires to forgive you. And, and we're the ones that have wronged him. And he's the one that stepped in to pursue this reconciliation. It wasn't us. It's not us flagging him down. Hey, I want to be reconciled. Hey, I want to be made right. No, we're just running in rebellion. But it gives us a, a picture of the very heart of God where he steps in and says, No, I, I, I not only have the power, I want to. I long to forgive you. I desire to forgive you. And it's like Matthew's writing going, oh yeah, this would be a great place to put my story. Just in case there are a few of us out here who think we're really horrible and sinful and Jesus would not want to forgive me. Let me give you my story. I mean, look what he says here in verse 9. And Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Now if you're familiar with tax collectors in this time, you, um, you recognize that these, these are a group of people that everyone hated. No one loved tax collectors. We don't love them now, right? You don't get a call from the IRS and going, hey honey, man, I got a great call from the IRS today. So, so excited, man. I think they're knocking on our door. Let's bring them in. Let's have dinner with them, right? No one's like, if you work for the IRS, thank God for you. But that's just kind of like what people think about us. And you can just like, you know, multiply this by a million within this culture and this society because they were, there were people that collaborated with the hated kind of, you know, Roman government and authorities at that time. And not only did they collaborate with them, they would take extra money off so, that, so whatever money they had to give to the Roman people, they could charge whatever they wanted to above and beyond that. And so here they are getting rich off their own people. I mean, they were just low. They were scums of society. They hated them. They're, everyone's angry at them. No one has kind words for these guys. Never. No one's going, hey, good to see you, Matthew. High five. Let me pat you on the butt, buddy. Man, I love you. No, they're like, you're just a jerk. They hated them. I mean, you read on, even when the religious leaders refer to them, they're always referring to them as tax collectors and sinners. Why is there this dichotomy, or why is there separate? 
Is it because tax collectors are not sinners? No, it's because sinners don't want to be referred to as tax collectors. That's, I'm serious. That, like those that understood that they're sinners, I don't want you to ever reference me as a tax collector because they're really low. Like they're just scum of the earth. And Jesus shows up. I mean, just try to sit and imagine that scene. And he looks at Matthew in his eyes, knowing his whole story, knowing his occupation. Follow me. It's all grace. Nothing in Matthew's life deserved this. Absolutely nothing made him worthy of Jesus showing up and looking him as a human being. Not as a tax collector, not the son of whoever it was, but as a human being. He saw a man, Matthew, and he spoke to him with dignity. He said, follow me. And there was like a resurrection that happened in Matthew's life that day, and he was never the same. And then look what happens. Verse 10. So they go to Matthew's house, and they're having big old party here. Look what's going on. And while Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And so, you know, like you got to get this scene. This isn't like a dinner at our home, you know, where you got like a table and everybody's sitting in a chair and most of the people went and washed their hands to make sure they don't get things dirty. And, you know, you have like a bowl, you get stuff and put it on your plate. You keep everything separate. Some of you get a little little annoyed with separateness and put napkins to keep things where they need to be so they don't get mixed done together. That's not how it's going here, right? They're laying down. That's why they say they're called reclining. They don't have a seat. They're laying down. And there's a common bowl that every single one of them are dipping out of. And I guarantee you there's a lot of double dipping, right? A lot of it. And they're not going and using antibacterial lotion before they do their double dipping or whatever. No, I mean, this is, this is an intimate setting, and whenever you had a meal with them in this time, there's a way that you're identifying with them. And think about who Jesus is. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he's identifying, he's dipping bread in a common bowl with sinners and the scum of the earth, so to speak. And so the religious leaders in this time are freaking out. Look what they say in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, they didn't even ask Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the reason why, and, and, and sometimes we want to give them a benefit of the doubt. I do. I want to be charitable toward them because we're more like them than we are like the disciples. To be real honest, most of us, the religious leaders, especially me at times, you know what I'm saying? So, but, but we can understand why they're saying this because there's, there's passages in the Old Testament that's going, oh my goodness, this completely contradicts what I've always read or what I always understood. And here's two. Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. What is Jesus doing? All of that! <laughs> and this would have been a psalm they had memorized by heart going, oh my goodness, what in the world? Here's a guy who's claiming to be God and I think there's a contradiction, right? I mean, this is it's more explicit in Psalm 26, where the psalmist is saying, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of, the, of evil doors. I refuse to sit with the wicked. And what is Jesus doing? He's in the assembly of evil doors, and he's sitting with the wicked. 
And these guys are going, wow, this is really blowing my mind. I don't understand what's going on here. How in the world can this guy who claims to be God be doing this with these people when the psalmist says you ain't supposed to be doing this? This is where a people are holding tight to the letter of the law without really looking at the spirit of the law. This is the people that are forgetting to put a certain lens on that helps them understand what these passages mean. That's why Jesus says in verse 12, now when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus saw himself as a doctor who came to heal the sick. And a doctor has to be in touch with sick people in order to heal them. If he's a doctor and he tries to avoid sick people, then you're not doing your vocation and your calling. Are you with me? Can you imagine showing up at your doctor's office this winter when you get the flu or whatever you got, and they say, hey, hold on, we only serve well people. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard, right? Maybe down the road. I think they haven't got to the new stuff. Go down the road. They might serve you as a sick person. Like, no, it's like a doctor's purpose in life is to heal people and help those who are sick. Is what Jesus is saying here. And eating with Matthew and his friends, Jesus isn't minimizing the gravity or the weight or their sin. He's not condoning their sin. He's not going, man, I love your lifestyle. Keep it up. No, he's not saying it's okay to stay where there are. His embracing of them and caring for them and the kindness that he acts toward them is not endorsing their lifestyle but it's a means by which they can be open to the very heart of God it's a means by which change can begin because he's 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 starting this relationship with them he's he's beginning it he's pursuing after them that's why he says this to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in verse 13 go and learn what this means I desire mercy that's the trump card not your rigorous religious things here not you trying to keep yourself clean and unstained from wicked people that's not what i'm after i de- desire mercy for i didn't come here to call righteous but i've come here to call sinners the trump card that trumps everything is that i am a a one who is full of mercy and therefore because i am god in the flesh that gives us a window into the very heart of god and that is this a god reflex or reaction right or, or um, yeah, reflex is a good word. His reflex towards sin is not wrath and judgment. I mean, think about that. So we're getting a window into the very heart of God here because Jesus says, first and foremost, I desire mercy. Not all your Bible studies, not your massive accountability group that where you guys are intense and you're going after it really hard. Not all your... You know, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning so you can spend two hours in prayer, whatever. And those are things that have their place and they're really, really important. I'm not trying to make fun of them and maybe I am a little bit. But I, they are, they do have their place and they're part of our own maturity and growing. But here's what I'm trying to say. If you do all those void of mercy, then you're missing something. And that's what these Pharisee and religious leaders, they know the Bible. Like we live in an overchurched area and the majority of us in this room know their Bibles. But if your reflex, if your instinctual response to sin is not mercy, 
You're missing the heart of God. And that's really convicting an indictment of my own life. Because God's reflex and his instinctual response to sin is not judgment and wrath, but it's grace and mercy. And you can see this all throughout the Bible. I mean, all throughout the Bible. Go to the beginning. Adam and Eve, they sin against God. What does God do first? Does he send down fire? Consume you freakazoids. Gone, starting all over. (laughs) No. He comes and he asks a question, doesn't he? Hey, where, where, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where, where are you, Eve? And that's not a question because he's bad at hide and seek, right? It's a question of grace, kindness. Think about the flood. We feel like, oh my gosh, if that's not a demonstration of wrath and judgment on sin, I don't know what is. And there's a part where that's true, but for 100 plus years, he's trying to woo people. Come to me. Look, this is where it's going. This is what sin's going to do. Look at the Israelites for hundreds of years. God sent prophet upon prophet. Come to me. Come back. Repent. I love you. You're my kids. Don't do this. It's not good. Patient, 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 patient. God's instinctual response, his reflex to sin is not judgment and wrath. It's grace and mercy. And we see this with Jesus who invites Matthew to come and follow him and then invites himself over to a dinner party where Matthew brings all of his buddies. Jesus has the power to forgive your sins and he wants to. So hopefully for a lot of us in this room, We hear that as a word of hope, especially for those that are bruised, broken, ashamed of their sin. Maybe you're here and you've hit rock bottom. God is overflowing with mercy and compassion toward you. Yes, you may have burned a lot of bridges, you may have done a lot of damage, and you may have brought a lot of hurt on some people in this room. And I'm not trying to downplay that hurt. I'm not trying to downplay the sin, and maybe they've written you off. Maybe they have, and, and maybe in some cir- circumstances, and I can't get into all this, maybe it's kind of the best thing that this, this relationship needs to happen. I don't know. But here's what I know from this passage of Scripture. God is not, He has not written you off because of some great sin. That's why Matthew brings this story in. Man, you talk about someone that knew his own sin and wickedness and evil and greed. It's like, He's got the power, and I'm going to bring my story in to show you he wants to. You see, I, I think, you know, when, when the Pharisees and religious leaders heard, you know, Jesus say, hey, you know, go and learn that I want mercy before I want sacrifice. Go and learn the heart of God, that God's heart is merciful. I think they would have objected to that. They probably would have said, whoa, hold on, Jesus. Whoa, man, we, we're merciful people. Anytime that Matthew would clean up his act, open arms. Anytime Matthew would confess his sin as a tax collector and how he cheated us, open arms. We would embrace him, welcome him. Anytime Matthew would have came to us and said, man, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey the Torah. I'm going to change my life. Man, open arms. We're there. He would 
meet our criteria and he would change we're there we're merciful people but that's the difference isn't it that's the difference between the religious leaders and Jesus Jesus welcomes Matthew and he welcomes you and he welcomes me with open arms long before we ever meet any criteria other than being a sinner that's why it's good news do you hear that do you hear that Jesus welcomes you welcomes you with open arms long before you meet any criteria other than what being a sinner You can come to Him as you are because Jesus is already moving toward you. And my prayer that that brings a profound sense of hope for those in this room that have come here bruised, broken, weighted, maybe even paralyzed because of the guilt of their sin. But not only is this a hopefully a a word of hope there is a word of warning here especially those who call themselves followers of jesus christ do not let your pursuit of godliness your pursuit of holiness which are really good pursuits and good things to pursue after but do not let that pursuit cause you to miss the very heart of god and how do i know lyle if i'm missing the very heart of god well you've got to look at what your reactive response to people's sin is not just sin that's in culture but sin that's really close to you or maybe it's both close to you and even what we see in culture if your instinctive response is harshness judgment anger you may be missing the heart of God because you don't share the same reflex that God has his reflex his instinctive instinctual response is mercy compassion kindness I think that's one of the biggest dangers for all of us in this room who grew up in this little Bible belt so to speak in this overchurched area is that you can know a lot about your Bible and you can miss the heart of God. Because you don't extend mercy to people. You're not charitable toward them. You're not forgiving. Maybe what we need to do is to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus has the power to forgive and he wants to so let me close with this maybe you're here and you say I'm not a Christian Lyle maybe you're here kind of exploring Christianity and I just want to say thank you for coming right I really do and I I know it can be really hard to walk in an environment like this and uh, very intimidating and I pray that as best as we try we try to make this place uh, a place where you can just come and, and sort of be safe with your struggles, your doubts, and your questions, and, and maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, my encouragement for you this morning is that you would receive the forgiveness of Jesus that's being offered to you. And that your soul will always be discontent and restless until it finds its rest in Him. 
And maybe today is not the day to kind of make that happen, but maybe today starts the conversation. And we've always got leaders in the back, and they would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. What does this mean to give my life to Jesus? You know, it's, I know it can be intimidating when you don't know somebody, and they're not going to, like, put you in a headlock and make you pray a prayer or whatever. But we want to be um, a place where we can start a conversation. Like, this is, you are created to be in communion, in relationship with God the Father, and your barrier is sin. And Jesus has come to pay for that in full. It isn't up to you. You don't have to do, like, jump through hoops. It's, it's a gift. So if you're not a Christian here, my encouragement for you is that you would receive his forgiveness. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then my, my encouragement for you, to, in addition to the kind of the word of warning here, I would say, um, may we learn to rest in this forgiveness. I mean, I don't know about you, but my guess is, is that many of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ still struggle with a lot of guilt and shame, and sometimes that guilt can paralyze us. I don't know about you, but maybe there's a sin in your past, and you probably even recognize you're doing this, but sometimes there's a sin in our past that we think is so big, so like awful, that we even have trouble forgiving ourselves and can't imagine God really forgiving me. Even though in our minds, we, we give this mental assent that my sin, not in part, but in full, has been forgiven we might even sing about that but our experience is far from that isn't it rest jesus has paid everything you are fully forgiven you're his child he's got the authority and he wants to i'll end with this quote A person rests in the forgiveness of sins when your thought of God does not remind you of your sins, but rather of the fact that they have been forgiven. So just, can we stop there for a second? So Lau, how do I know I'm resting in his forgiveness when you think about the sin that's in your past that's huge that you think God can't forgive you? Yeah, if that's what you think about first when you think about God, then you're not resting in the forgiveness that's given to you through Jesus. He goes on, so that what has happened in your past is now not a remembrance of how badly you did then, but of how much you were forgiven. Forgiveness closes the past and opens the door to a brand new future, and Jesus has the authority to set your life in a brand new direction, and he wants to. Let's pray. So, Father, I just ask that you would help those that are here that need to receive your forgiveness, that they would do so this morning. And, Father, I also ask for those who need to rest in your forgiveness, that you would help them to do that also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So as we end our service here, we always end with communion, which is, um, yeah, it's an intentional reminder, an opportunity for us as followers of Christ to think upon, reflect upon the sacrifice that was made for us for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you're a Christian, we ask you to come forward, break a piece of bread off, dip it in wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is always marked by twine. But if you're not a follower of Christ, then our encouragement for you is not to take this meal, but to, to do what I said a few minutes ago, to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. There's always leaders in the back that would love to talk to you more about that. So whenever you're ready to take communion, church, you can stand up and come forward. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.